continuing our look at uh, through the book of Mark and really looking at what did Jesus actually say. A friend of mine who is not a believer gave me a t-shirt one time and it's a picture of Jesus and all the thing it says on it is, I didn't say that. And I wear it with pride sometimes because I'm often told by other people who aren't followers of Jesus or really have ever read the Bible telling me, this is what Jesus said. And I'm like, really? No, he didn't. You're letting something else inform you. So we're going through this to say, what did Jesus actually say? And last week, Al led us through the beginning of chapter 6, where we see Jesus being doubted, being rejected in his hometown, the place where people you would think would love him the most. And instead, the familiarity and the longevity of the relationship should have created an intimacy but it actually blinded the people. And even though we looked at some of these verses a little bit last week, Al and I talked about that. He jumped into some of my verses and he's like, okay, you do you, then I'll just clean up your mess, Al. He's probably watching, that's why I said that. But we're gonna dive into a little bit because there's some words for the disciples that Jesus uses once again for a group of 70 that I think are really important. So let's read those right now. Mark 6, verses 7 to 13. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the impure spirits. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Let's pray. Father, we come before your throne as the angels are circling you right now, declaring you to be holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. And Jesus, through your death and resurrection, we come boldly before the throne accepted by you. And Spirit, may you speak in us. May you challenge us. May you see things that may we see things that you've been asking us to do for maybe for a long time. And that maybe today is the day we move. Help us understand. In your name, amen. A few decades ago, I'm not going to tell you how many, a while ago, I met the girl who would be my wife. First day of college, looked back at the class, saw her. The next day of class, I sat next to her. One of us was more intrigued with the other person than the other person was with me. There was a pursuing of her and her being nicest. In fact, she was voted nicest person or friendliest person in her high school. What I interpreted as affection, she was just living out her life. How could someone be this nice to me and not be into me? She showed me what that was like. After some time, I got some courage up. I told her how I felt. She said the worst thing possible. I see you as a brother I never had. Now, why is that bad? Because when when you're called a friend, you still have a chance. 
When you're called a brother, you're in the family. There's no chance of future relationship besides, this is my big brother, he fights for me. It destroyed me. Well, not really. That was a bit of a dramatic statement. I've learned to do that. Like you use big statements and people are like, oh, it was rough. I may have cried. I wore her down. I just kept showing up. That was the only gift and chance I had. A few years later, I asked her to marry me. She said yes. Don't know why. And everything in me, when we were planning on getting married, wanted to make Lisa the most important thing in my life. I wanted to value her above all others. I wanted to love her as Christ loved the church. And as a pastor, I get this unique privilege of being in this moment with so many couples as they're getting married, of doing this thing that we do when we get married, of making vows and promises to the other person. Sometimes uh, people want to write their own vows, and what I've learned to ask them to do will actually make sure you make a promise when you do that. Because some of the vows were like, oh, you're amazing, you're beautiful, you make me so happy. I'm like, there's no promise in there, do something. One time I was so moved by the beauty of these vows, I started to cry. True story. And the bride took out a little hanky and like wiped my tears. (laughs) It happens when you get older. Whatever filter I had that stopped the tears is gone. I'm watching Disney movies. I'm crying. The Niners beat the Packers. I'm crying. Oh, dear Lord. It may have been cold here this morning, but it's colder in Green Bay. Oh, thank you for being with me on that. <laughs> Praise be to God. But we make these vows and these promises, and we mean them, but we haven't lived life yet. And there's something about actually living life and something actually navigating it that really either makes us say these vows are true or they get pushed back in our face. The intention of my heart and the desire to do these things only really come true when I'm placed in these situations. When I step out and say, as evidenced by this. I remember about four or five years into our marriage, there was a transformational time where it was evident the vows and desires of my heart were not ringing true. It's one thing to believe something. It's one thing to think something. It's one thing to be in the presence of somebody. But if your actions do not represent the very thing you've promised to do, what good is it? I had been hired at a church to be their youth pastor. I worked at a small little church for a while, and things went well. So this other church said, will you come? I'm like, yeah. And since Lisa and I didn't really have a mechanism to make decisions, we thought we had a job offer. This must be from God. So we went. It was a tough transition. But after a while, things started to take off, at least for me. Kids were coming. Youth were there. I was coaching football. I was doing all the things that I wanted to do and envision. Because in my mind, it was, if I do something you want me to do, God, it's going to be blessed and it's going to grow. Suddenly, we were reaching 500 kids a week. 
There was more kids in the youth ministry than there were in the church, and I loved it. I was being affirmed, encouraged. I was out there. But I was out Tuesday night with the high school, Wednesday with the junior high, Thursday with the college, coaching. I was out every single night of the week. And I would come home absolutely exhausted. Let me tell you something. The exhausted version of Dale is not a great version of Dale. My words get shorter. My encouragement is gone. And really, I become incredibly self-focused. My wife waited for me every night when I was there. One night I came home, and she's in tears. And because my life had become so self-centered about what I think God wanted me to do, I assumed her tears was because somebody else did something to her. So I said, who did this to you? And she just looked at me, and I'm like, wait, what? I said, no, what's really going on? And my wife looked at me, probably through the lens of what I had promised her, of what my intentions were. She said, everybody else gets the best of you, and I just get what's left over. It needs to end right now or else. The Lord shut my mouth at that moment because I did not want to know what that or else was. He does that for me sometimes. Just as he shut the mouths of lions, you know, with Daniel, he's like, and Dale, which is a pretty amazing miracle in itself, because I'm pretty quick with my responses, but nothing was going to help. I mustered up some kind of apology in the moment that seemed to be sustaining, at least. I made some promises once again, and yet the only thing that was really going to matter was the movement forward. It took a mirror in my face to say, here's the desires of who I think I want to be. Here's actually now how I'm living it out. I need to pivot. I needed something to accelerate my growth as a husband. I needed something to accelerate my growth as a follower of Jesus. And there are times, only those moments when we're sent out, when we're challenged, when we're saying your current status of how you're living isn't matching up, do we really understand what it's like to be dependent on God, to consider a different pathway than we had before? Sometimes a go means a redirection. How do the things I know and feel actually work out in my actions. Let's go back to these verses a little bit. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he may have been with the disciples maybe a couple of years. They had seen and heard things that astonished them. And as we've been talking about in the past two weeks, they saw Jesus' authority over nature when he commanded the storm to end. He saw his authority over the supernatural when he commanded the demons to leave the man. They saw his authority over the physical, even as a touch of faith was enough to be healed. And after each one of these movements of Jesus, there was this call to respond. There was a call to move. There was a call to go or change. After the storm, his questionings of their faith, of his disciples' faith, where are you? Where is this faith? Implies you need to pivot. After the freeing of the possessed man, he says to him, go home. 
Tell people about my mercy. There's a call to live out his mercy. And after the healing of the woman, he says, now go in peace. Live out this peace that is now within you. You see, Jesus implements his power and then he asks for a response, a life of faith, a life of mercy, and a life of peace. You see, it's really difficult to exaggerate the lack of readiness the disciples had to be sent out. The impression of them created by Mark so far, man, it falls well short of complimentary. It falls well short of like, and these guys were ready to rock it. They did not understand his teaching. They did not trust his will. They didn't trust his power to protect them. They're not sensitive to his extraordinary perception, yet they were sent out in pairs to teach, to heal, and to exercise demons. You know, this may look like a huge risk for Jesus, but Jesus' power and authority actually eliminated the actual risk. The risk was really on whether they were willing to go to do something. At the beginning of this verse, it says he called his disciples together. Most likely, they were probably at home. Maybe it was like a rest. Maybe it was Sabbath. Maybe it was their day off. They're like, what, he's calling us on our day off? I'm going to call my union rep. <laughs> but Jesus calls them out and says, here's my idea. Why would he do that? Maybe he knew what was needed was an accelerated growth in them. And it was only going to happen when their dependency on him was actually needed. It appears that no amount of hearing, teaching, or observing miracles, or even just being with Jesus completed the discipleship formation. They must risk themselves in dependence of the gospel and the power that accompanies it. They had to see firsthand how things worked, actually worked out to the commitment they started to see in their heart. And when you commit, and how do you let go? You know, and looking at my own life, here's what I've learned about that. The control that I think I have, I never really had it. And the control you think you have, you don't really have it. In order for my character to be adequately developed, it needs to be exposed all along the way. And being confident in my dependency on God does not come, from, does not come alone from what I know or what I've heard. My dependency on God and our dependency on God, it comes from experiencing it firsthand. And we need to go. This was formed so early in my life or my ministry, and I had no idea that this is what God was going to do. I've shared this story with some of you, I think, at a leader's night four years ago, and I'm going to share it as much as I can because of what God did in and through me. As a young man of about 23, 24, I was invited to join a, a, another pastor and some interpreters to go to Russia. It was just a few years after they had become um, free under the, from the reign of, of communism, per se. There's a different system. And the church became free, meaning it was now okay. They didn't have to hide. 
So I was invited to go, and I wasn't told I was really going to do anything except observe and plan a trip for the next year. So I just go. I'm the young guy. They're not going to ask me to do anything. Why would you ask someone young and inexperienced to say anything? That was my mindset. I thought, I'm getting a free trip to Russia. It wasn't on my bucket list, but it almost became my bucket that's funny. About Wednesday, you're going to go, oh, that, he almost died. I get it. Wait till Wednesday. It's going to hit you. I'm just kidding. Each day was a new adventure. We'd show up not knowing where we were going, what we were doing. We'd show up at schools, and they'd say they canceled school for the day. Here are all the teachers. Tell them about Jesus. Ah, oh, okay. And these were people who had never really heard about Jesus. I mean, literally because it was not part of their education, not part of their training in the middle of Novosibirsk, Siberia. One day we woke up and we uh, said, we're going to go, and they wouldn't tell us where we were going. So we pull up to what looked like a prison. So I joked out loud, this looks like a prison. They said, ha, it is a prison. It's a woman's prison in Siberia. You're going to speak to the prisoners. I'm like, if there's a scenario that I have no connection with, at 24 years old, a prison in the middle of Siberia, incarcerated women, I'm like, man, I wonder who's going to speak? Me. So I had been to some other prisons before, and they take you through very, like, sheltered places to go. We walked right through the middle of the yard, like, with, like, hundreds of people there. And I'm like, hey, how's it going? Hey, how's it going? And they were saying things to me in Russian, and I'm like, I'm sure that's complimentary, you know. I'm sure that's, like, encouraging. It was a week of this. We got to the final day. We're at church, and I'm like, finally, the lead pastor who I was with, he's going to preach. I just get to sit here and just relax. We had this little meeting right before the church service. We're in the back, they called us in, and through the interpreter, the, the uh, pastor of the church said, there's going to be three sermons today. Because when they gather, it was like no joke. Some people here are like, man, reality services last like an hour and a half. I'm like, this was like four hours. Bring a lunch, bring a knapsack, whatever you need to do. I'm like, three sermons? Awesome. I wonder who's preaching. The first sermon will be by, they called me Dalovich. I'm like, really? I mean, I had nothing planned, no thoughts. And I'm like, so I'm thinking in my head, I can at least prepare while they're singing, right, during worship. I know everyone, that sounds bad, but that was my, okay, I'm sure they worship for like a half hour. I got some time to plan. There will be one song, and then you're on. And the last thing he said to me, make sure it's at least 45 minutes because people expect a good sermon. So I've gone to Bible school. I've read the Bible, but for some reason, every single thing in the Bible left my head at that moment. (laughs) I had no idea. I'm like, what, 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 what? You know, and I'm sitting there in the front because they make you all sit up front, you know, and I'm trying to look really spiritual as I'm like about to preach, and there's this crowd full of people, and I'm like, man, the interpreter better be really good today. So I go, I don't know what I'm going to say, so just bring it. And they're like, I only say what you say, and I'm like, oh, okay. I literally am getting up to the front to the pulpit. There's no notes. And the pastor behind me says, just preach John 3.16. And I'm like, I think I remember that one. And there was this little like pamphlet, this tract that I had called the Four Spiritual Laws. 
And the first law was like, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for my life. Well, for your life. I'm pretty sure I said my life. By that moment, it didn't feel like a wonderful plan. I remember that sermon. That's a lie. I don't remember a single thing about that sermon that I said. I think it went like this. God loves you. Say something. God really loves you. Man, God just loves you. Did I tell you God loves you? I, I was putting the interpreter to sleep. The sermon was so bad. He was like, I was petrified. I was terrified. I was convinced I had let God down. I finished the sermon. I go and sit down, and the pastor of the church is like, Dalovich, you don't preach without asking people to respond. And I'm like, who in the world's going to respond to that? They're just going to say next. So I went back up, and I'm like, if you'd like to, I don't know how I said it. This is how I remember. If you'd like to accept Jesus that I talked about, feel free to come forward. <laughs> That's how I felt because I thought so much, this is in my own strength, this is my own skill, this is my own ability. There's no way God can use this. And I remember the pastor's eyes just starting to weep and I'm like, I've even made him sad. <laughs> and then I turned around and there was this family walking to the front. And he said, we've been praying for them for weeks and weeks and weeks. He used to work for the KGB. He's giving his life to Jesus. And then this other family came up. And these people came forward. And I'm like, I wonder what message they heard. <laughs> and in that moment, God's like, shut up. This isn't about you. All you did was step into a situation and go and you opened your mouth. I did the work. There's power in the gospel. Now, I had learned that. I had heard that. I could preach it. But you know when I really, really felt it and believed it? It was that moment. And that moment, though it was 31 years ago, feels like yesterday. Because when we go... And when we finally place a dependence outside of ourself, the acceleration of our growth, and you get to see what God is really about when you let go. And he's like, let me show you something. As I mentioned before, Jesus used this same game plan with more people. The sending out of pairs was not just for unique to the 12. He actually did it with a group of 70 some scripture says 72. This was probably part of the 70 that were in the upper room when, when the Holy Spirit came. Let me read these familiar instructions, but he gets a little more detailed in Luke 10. After the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go, he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers to his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. 
Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your, of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Now, while this is specific for these people, there are definitely things in here for us. For some, this has become kind of a formulaic thing. This is the things you do when you enter a town, maybe. But there's a significant call to a decreasing self-reliance by letting go and seeing how God really works. There is a way of living well within his kingdom. Maybe Jesus started to see in the eyes of his disciples and these people that there was a growing complacency by simply being with him and relying on him. Maybe this complacency in their eyes reminded him of his hometown that were so familiar with Jesus that they became hardened to what he was asking them to do. You see, familiarity at times can increase intimacy, but often familiarity just becomes numbing. Some observations. These aren't things that are that dramatic. You can see this in the verses yourself, but let me just make some. The first is this. Be aware. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. We will be seen as vulnerable or as easy targets. This is just the appearance. It's not the reality. His power is with us. But he was just calling it out in advance. You're going to feel like this. Second observation, let me provide for you. Do not take a purse or a bag. Carry no extra provisions. For some, this feels irresponsible. But for him, he's like, I have something for you. They were dependent on others to fulfill what God was asking them to do. There's this system in his kingdom where he moves in one to supply for the other, and it only can happen and be blessed when they both say yes. Something beautiful and amazing can happen out of that. He's saying, go out and patiently expect the unexpected. Third observation Extend the blessing that you have. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promises or promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. Whoever housed them should be blessed. Using the common greeting of the day, peace to this house. We're called to be a conduit of his peace, to go into situations and break chaos, not to increase the chaos. The next observation, he just simply says to them, be content. Do not move around from house to house. Don't seek better accommodations. They were to stay in the home that first received them. There's this thing around contentment. I use this with couples all the time and individuals when they're struggling. I'm like, don't say, what would life be like if we had more? But say, what can we do with what God's given us right now? If he gives us more, great. If he takes it away, great. But what can we do right now? This is the very core of why Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He says, I've learned to live with much 
and I've learned to live with little, I can do all things through Christ. And the final observation of this is to be flexible. When you enter a town and you're welcome to eat what is offered to you, they were to eat whatever their host served as God's servants. They were not to be finicky or picky. Let's be honest. For some of you, this might be the toughest one of all of them. I have food restrictions. I can't eat. I'm not really making fun of that. But he's saying, like, whatever I provide is what I provide. In times of pressure, isn't it true that in times of pressure is when we reach out for the control the most? Potentially causing all sorts of anxiety, fear, doubt. He clearly is saying the counter to you reaching out for control when you're under pressure is actually selflessness. It is in those moments we need to counter our instinct and allow his instinct to take over, to let go. A few verses later, we get to read the result of their trip. We get to see something that we don't get to see from the 12. They came back to him. They said, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, man, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There are times when God's power within us is going to be like Satan has fallen. And those moments are amazing. But he said, the thing that's going to sustain you no matter what, and the reason we go, is because our names are written. We're in the family. We're in the kingdom. We're with God. What Jesus called attended to was not the power he gave them, but the fact that their names were written in heaven there in his kingdom. And that's what really held them. Paul makes this observation looking back. He said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is in the name of Jesus Christ alone who deserves all of our attention and glory. So we go. Now, when we hear this word go, and in a church context, we're often thinking, well, he's telling me to leave and do something else. I'm not telling you that. I'm asking you, what has God been tapping on your shoulder? The go could be literally to go. The go could be literally to stay. The go could be to do less, to be more focused. The go could be let go in those moments of anxiety and transfer your instinct for my instinct. When you try to become bigger, maybe become more selfless. What are you willing to do? The things that God has placed in front of you to step into because he wants to accelerate your growth. I can't think of anything more loving than Jesus saying, I'm allowing you to be stretched so that you actually become the very thing you dreamed about. We bring things before God, and I say, God, I got two options, this one or this one. There's two things that we need to realize in that. One, he may have given you those options in the first place, so maybe ask him what he's telling you to do, not just asking him which one you want. And two, it could be bigger than that. 
The options you're facing could be the ones that you're controlling. What if you let go? What if you took a breath and said, what can I do to experience you, God, more than I ever have before? A series of observations as I close. One, as followers of Jesus, we can engage with others with compassion, kindness, full of respect, only when we're actually deeply confident about what we believe. This confidence comes when you personally experience God's providing presence for you and through you. Confidence in who you are with Jesus does not come in the ability to win a debate. In fact, those who are most confident, those who are most at peace, most united, it's like, I've been through this before. Have you been through this before? Because you can have maybe even your own daughter look at you and say, I don't really believe this anymore. And my response isn't one of anxiety. My response is, I know the truth. And I will walk through this with you, not dismayed by what you just said. Two, there is no promise of immediate visual success. Just assurance of his power with us in our place with him. I've often thought, if God asks me to do something, it's going to be great. Then I realized God's asked me to do a lot of things that never turned out great. I don't know if it turned out at all. But what he said to me was, at least you know my voice. I'm going to give you more. Third, it was Jesus that sent them out. It is Jesus that sends you out. Rejection and closed doors was not a sign that he didn't send them out. In fact, he promised it. They just needed to keep moving forward, if forward was the right direction. See, that's the thing we need to choose sometimes. I just need to keep moving forward. I think we need to stop and go, is forward the actual right direction? If it's not, then stop. Don't keep going. Be like, which way do I need to go? And there's times where we go, I felt like God wanted me to do this. I heard his voice. Why is it hard? This is a perfect example. It's like, it's hard because it's hard. That was deep. It's hard because not everyone is wanting you to be successful or Jesus to be successful. But I'm telling you firsthand, when you see God move, when you see the acceptance of somebody else's hospitality, when you see God come through, it is invigorating. And it will sustain you until the next time you need to see God come through again. Four, when you don't know the, right ne- the next right thing to do, go back to what you do know and you have experienced. My friends, we are loved by God. His presence is with us. And I'm being asked to go. Fifth, a body of believers, a church, that plays it safe is rarely an influential church. It actually becomes discredited and not needed 
and the community around them. We don't watch a football game to watch them huddle. We don't go, wow, those Niners, they're huddling great tonight. We watch a football game to see if they're willing to risk what they just talked about and actually do. Our community wonders what we're doing in here today. What they need is are we actually willing to risk what God is asking us to do? And finally, this is my question for you, because this is the question for me. What breaks your heart? God so often works through that in asking you to go or to stand or to redirect or whatever that is. It may be a literal go, it may be a literal stay, but for sure it's a selfless dependency on him, full of his power, full of his authority. So my friends, what's God been tapping on your shoulder to do? To be, to stretch. Not to earn his favor, my friends, you have his favor. Not to catch his attention, you have his attention. Not to please him, he is fully pleased with you. And I think he's greatly burdened by looking in our eyes is that the complacency we may have and the familiarity, the familiarity we may feel is actually one of our biggest enemies. And we come alive. We say, God, I'm going to step come through. We're moving in a time now that we do every week where we respond. Don't respond to my words. Respond to God's tapping on your shoulder and your heart. And it may not even be clear. But we have different elements where we come and remember what Jesus did for us. That our names are written in the book of life in heaven because of his death and resurrection. So we remember through communion the body and the blood. For some, you need to actually lay this before the Lord and maybe tell somebody else in prayer so we have prayer teams. For others, you may just need to selflessly position yourself, take a posture of selflessness and say, God, I want to let go and have you work. But whatever it is, respond. Let go. I'm going to invite you to stand as I pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, for moving in our lives. I pray we do not just sit back, let complacency or familiarity take its place that we are who our community and our world need us to be. Kingdom people, active people, people of boldness, people of faith. We love you. In your name, amen.